Suddenly, there was a terrible roar all around us, and the sky was full of what looked like huge bats, all swooping and screeching and diving around the car. And a voice was screaming, Holy, Holy Jesus, Jesus, where are these goddamn animals? Say something! Hmm? Never mind. It's your turn to drive. No point mentioning these bats, I thought. The poor bastard will see them soon enough. This is Film Slab. Welcome to the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to Film Slam. Thanks for listening again. Today we have a guest. We're talking about 1990s eight Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, directed by Perry Gilliam. And we're talking about it with Dustin Willoughby. Dustin, will you say a few words about yourself? Hi, um, I'm Dustin, uh, born and raised in Southern California. I do a lot of comedy in my life. I did stand-up to start out with and switch over to improv, which is what I've been doing for the past five, six plus years, something like that. I don't even know. I'm looking at Patrick like, tell, yeah. me, <laughs> tell me how long I've been doing the things I do. Seven, seven years on improv. Seven years, jeez. little uh, uh, bit of trivia. The reason why Dustin's looking over is uh, we've been roommates a long time. I yes. think about four years. Yeah. Been roommates. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you should know. Yeah. You should know how long it's been. I should know, yeah. <laughs> I hope it's intimately familiar at this point. I hope it's written on, yeah. on your wall like his height. <laughs> Four years Keep all comedy. the stats for me. He's still a growing boy. <laughs> He's put on uh, half an inch since last summer. <laughs> um, so, Dustin, uh, what I like to like ask all our guests is, um, I think the obvious question is, why Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? This is your choice, right? You brought this to Patrick? Yeah. Yeah, um, Patrick asked me a couple times what movie I would do, and I had a couple different answers. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm glad we went with this one. I definitely watched this movie a lot. Uh, after high school, I moved to Las Vegas with my family, mm-hmm. uh, just outside Vegas, but then eventually moved within Vegas. And that's also where I started doing um, school for screenwriting and filmmaking, just community college stuff, but definitely what I always wanted to do. And in high school, I studied filmmaking and stuff. We had TV, what is it, like TV video class or something like that. Yeah. It's basically they teach you all the editing and filming etiquette and stuff like that. So when I got into community college, it's time to watch all the greatest films of all time and see everything that I could. Yeah. And Fear and Loathing was the first criteria on DVD that I ever bought. Oh. And it was like 60 bucks. Yeah. Oh, nice. How did someone Yeah, it didn't, uh, it didn't occur to me that there's an intersection here with you and uh, that you lived in Las Vegas for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's when you when you saw the first the movie for the first time. Yeah. You living in Vegas? I'd never watched it before. Yeah. And then when I was in Vegas, like, it did come up in conversation when I talked to people. Like, oh, you ever see this movie? That's kind of an ode to old Vegas a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd never watched it before then, so I watched it and loved it. It was so cool and funky. Yeah, that's different. cool. Is um, this the first uh, Terry Gilliam movie you'd seen? No, I definitely watched 12 Monkeys yeah. a million times before I probably should have even seen it once. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I grew up, my I went to my grandparents' house a lot after school, and they had a black box for getting the pay <laughs> channels for free. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And they didn't, my grandma didn't work, so she was at home all day. So literally would just go on HBO and every big movie that was on that day, she was just recording VHS. Oh, nice. So I got to go after school to just a block of VHS tapes, all labeled 
big movies or whatever. And I really like 12 Monkeys for some reason. I watched it a bunch. Oh, yeah. yeah. Barely remember it now, but I know I watched it a million times. And it was just because it was so different and weird the way it was shot because mm-hmm. of the way Terry does his stuff. It's yeah. so cool. And later on, Brazil was like my favorite movie for a long time. Yeah, um, Patrick and I actually just rewatched Brazil as, um, well, we want to do it for another podcast, our friend's podcast. We want to pair Brazil with The Matrix, and I think they have a lot in common. Oh. I think I was kind of surprised that Brazil was like a darker movie than The Matrix in some ways, especially in the end. Yeah. <laughs> I love the dystopian stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, and I love the, the twist and turns in the making of this podcast is that this uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is the first Terry Gilliam movie we've done. Not Brazil. We almost did Brazil. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, I think that talk will eventually happen. Um, so this was something you kind of sought out for yourself when you're in film school, right? Because I don't imagine this is something that is recommended. It's not like Chinatown. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't say uh, this is on the curriculum. Go out and watch this yeah. drug movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what pulled me in was being in Vegas. And I've always kind of knew about this movie and knew that it was like very drug related and yeah. definitely tied to the 60s and that kind of stuff. But watching it was, I don't know, it was like kind of like a, a threshold crossing into like there's different films out there yeah. and different ways that people did things yeah. yeah just in terms of style like energy cutting i think the sound design is really interesting in this movie the way it's recorded it sounds like it's coming off of an old stereo or something or like i don't know the soundtrack sounds like an old am radio or something like even the way they record their voices in the movie it's like really bizarre it's not what you would typically get and i think um if you watch mank the David Fincher movie, he did like a similar thing where he recorded in like this mono old school like track from what uh, like a soundtrack would sound like then. Um, but yeah, this is one of my first Criterion DVDs as well. I bought this and eight and a half on the same day and I worked like, I think I told this story before, I worked like three doors down from a Tower Records and they had a whole Criterion collection um, aisle and I was just like drawn to this cover. I had no idea what this movie was like, what was it about? I had no idea who Hunter S. Thompson it was. Um, it was just the cover that got you. It's the cover, yeah. I think that's what That's Criterion... cool, because the Criterion does have a cool cover. It's the it's the artist drawing oh, of Raul Duke it's not, and uh... Dr. Gonzo. Yeah. Oh, okay. And it has, oh, like, that cool, like, ink, ink bloody drawing style. Uh, a little bit like that. They're standing outside the car. Yeah, I'm, I'm showing Dustin the, the Ralph Steadman illustration from the cover of the book. Yeah, yeah. It has that really distinct style. And this one has, like, a plastic yeah. slip cover over it. So Yeah, it, the, yeah. and it's got, like, these weird grooves on the plastic. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> I've touched that DVD so much. <laughs> Spent yeah. $60 on yeah. the experience. That, I have that tactile memory. Like, I, I'm sure I just yeah. sat there and looked at the box for, like, 20 minutes. That's when I bought it. <laughs> uh, Patrick, I don't think you liked this movie when you first saw it. What was that like? Uh, yeah. So, um, and you know, I, it was just kind of like, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it at all. I didn't know who Hunter S. Thompson was when I first saw it. I think I saw it when I was a teenager and I just didn't make, it didn't leave any kind of imprint on me. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was kind of like, um, a, a boorish drunk drug romp, you know? Yeah. I, I didn't really get it. Um, I think I gained more of an appreciation for Hunter S. Thompson later when I started reading his books. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah. I, and coming back to it now, after having read a couple of uh, Hunter S. Thompson's books, some of his journalism, um, I have more of an appreciation for it now, especially from the social commentary angle yeah. of it, the loss of momentum of the 60s. Yeah. Um, th- 
like the the purposefully grotesque pro- portrayal of of the American dream of consumerism, yeah, um, and and uh, pursuing experience to excess, you know, like in this gro- very <laughs> grotesque way. Yeah, um, I appreciate it more now. Um, going back to the note on style that it that it's so different. Um, reading some of the reception online, and this is similar to the way I received it when I first watched it, uh-huh. is it's a little off-putting. Um, it's it's got a really harsh energy. Yeah, yeah. and um, it's like a bad trip. You yeah, know? it most definitely um, is. Yeah, um, so that's kind of like why it's got like if you go online, it's got a mixed reception. Yeah, you know? like um, people either like its visuals or they find it off-putting yeah it's uncomfortable but i think discomfort is a through line in the life and work of hunter s thompson (laughs) yeah no i i think it really serves his uh his themes that that discomfort yeah definitely um hunter s thompson um if we want to get into him a little bit um one of my favorite things that i've read from him was is hell's angels um yes i think he came out with that in 1966 around there yeah so this is um um like if you think of hunter s thompson being reflective and pensive of the loss of the momentum of the 1960s hell's angels he wrote that and he got he got fully immersed in their organization Uh um i think what i kind of appreciate about hunter s thompson now is like he he's got credibility because he gets fully immersed in his and and gets like total contact with his subjects uh-huh. um and is willing to like put his life on the line almost you know to like yeah. get fully immersed yeah. and i think fully yeah um, like i think fully yeah. at times i think he he was beat up by hell's angels like they beat him up pretty badly yeah, that's mm-hmm. how it that's how it ended. He spent like a year with them and yeah. uh gained their trust, you know, like this notoriously um like violent group that really hates outsiders. You know, like these people are outsiders themselves and found found like a surrogate family amongst uh, other like all these outcast bikers. Yeah. Um so they're wary of like anybody that comes from the outside. Yeah. And um, the fact that like he was able to like kind of get infiltrate that culture and become like trusted among them, um, like supports that idea that like he's he's got credibility as a journalist sure, because he like yeah. gets all the way in there. I'm sure he earned a certain amount of respect just by how abrasive he is as a person. Like that's probably yeah. impressive to somebody who lives that type of lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, right. just, just how wild he is because yeah. like he would he would invite people over to his apartment. Like he would invite the angels over to his apartment every now and then. He ended up getting evicted from his apartment because, like one night, he drove around with some angels in his car. And uh, the way he writes it, like he's got like such a great mix of like deadpan and intellect and yeah. and intensity yeah. in his writing. Um, Purpose he, in those words. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like he's describing in like one in one part of Hell's Angels where. Um, he gets evicted from his apartment because he's riding around in a car with some uh, angels and he um, he blows his back windshield out with a 12 gauge shotgun <laughs> and he's just like firing through the roof of the th- roof of the 357 and he's like I thought that went off like I thought nobody cared about that but apparently like a few weeks later I got evicted and you oh, know, wow. like, he's just he's nuts and like he had like motorcycles like driving out of his apartment yeah and, and uh 
he he bought his own motorcycle like that like that's how like ingrained he got in their like little world and he was like a method actor reporter yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and so like there's a, a a few really good uh documentaries on hunter s thompson like that i would recommend like um uh there's there's one called fear and loathing uh, in las vegas <laughs> oh yeah exactly yeah yeah it's pretty much a documentary yeah Boy. but um uh buy a ticket take the ride mm. is a documentary that came out not, I, yeah. I guess not too long ago i saw that but one that one was good yeah it's a good and then too. uh one they did in like 1978 uh omnibus it's pretty good too he was just like a almost an intolerable intolerable person to be around i mean mm -hmm. I, I think like his wife said a lot of things about uh like the way he was she had a lot to say on the subject of like just the way he was to live with um he was a person that was like impetuous like i read through his old uh his letters and stuff like that it's a it's a book called the proud highway um and just the fact that he he cannot sit still like he was in love with a different woman there's like so many letters to like so many different women and he's just like professing his love to the fullest like they were his entire world but it happens over and over and over again like month to month he's completely deeply in love maybe he's just that good of a writer but he's like completely deeply in love with all these women like month by month and there's always somebody different um, he was reading that book. You can tell that even in his letters, like he was a really talented writer from like the age of seventeen when he was like in military school or academy or whatever. He ends up joining joining the army, also. Yeah, yeah. And he's only yeah, like he gets started so young. I, he was a journalist in the army. Like he wrote for their paper. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, immediately after getting out of the army, he went to Puerto Rico. He was a correspondent for an English newspaper, I yeah. think, in in Puerto Rico. Yeah, that's where the um, Rum Diary and, comes from. Yeah, and uh, yeah, exactly. That's where the Rum Diary comes from. Mm -hmm. um, one of like this portrayal of Las Vegas as like a perverse version of the American dream. Yeah, you see shades of that in the Rum Diary because he he has like he has disdain for these uh, like white middle class people who come to Puerto Rico. Yeah, um, that just stay on the resort. They're too afraid to like go out and like meet locals and stuff like that. They stay they're on in the Puerto resort. Rico, but they're not really in Puerto Rico. They're yeah. In, like the safe zone. Yeah. They just like bowl. Like, they go to the bowling alley and they, they're too afraid to like go out and meet locals and stuff like that. And yeah. He's like, he sees that as this like perverse, uh, consumerist, um, version of the american dream and it that's in the 50s mm -hmm. uh fear and loathing in las vegas 1971 he mm -hmm. you know he's he still sees it you know it, it, and, and maybe even accelerating yeah it's like the perfect base for the story he wants to talk about hypocrisy kind of like how as a as a civilian as like a, a citizen you're supposed to follow these certain rules while everybody else is cheating he has this famous mm -hmm. line about like the only people who lose in the system are the people who get caught um, mm, yeah. Yeah. Dustin, um, someone who's lived in Vegas, have you seen it kind of progress in any sort of way? Like, I hear that it's a different place from like, e even yeah. when it was in like, you know, early 2000s, the 90s. I don't know how much you know about that. And if you want to talk about that, like, just the way it was known then, because I'm sure in the 70s it was something much different than it is now. Even I think in early 2000s, Vegas was just like not a place where people, like, people treat it now as like a, a place that's just like, right down the street we can go gamble have it's been disney-fied yeah exactly it's that's that's what like a lot of the people down there feel mm -hmm. uh at least when i was down there when people talk about like old vegas versus current vegas which was 2006 2007 probably through 2010 or something when i was down there so 
that was already starting to turn. Vegas is now family friendly. Mm. Yeah. Like today. And even when I was down there, it was really starting to turn. I remember when my grandparents first moved out to Vegas area from out where we live now. We went out there as kids and it felt really adult. I mean, we were yeah. kids, but it still felt like, wow, everything over here is boobs and booze. The thing, <laughs> like the big marker for me, though, was the Treasure Island pirate oh, uh, play yeah. that yeah. happens. It happens like on the strip. Yeah, outside, on the strip. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was really young, we went there and that was maybe pre Pirates of the Caribbean or something like that. But still, mm. as a kid, pirates are cool. Yeah. So we watched that. It was a lot of women and a lot of cleavage and a lot of, you know, just being risque for the sake of being risque. And then when I moved out there, went back to Treasure Island and watched it. And it's totally different. Like that show is completely changed and it's just a straight up pirate show. Nothing about women or anything like that. It's it's cleaned up a lot. Yeah, I think it's even cleaned up from its very early days. Like the founding of Vegas was basically this place where mobsters can wash their money. Like, yeah. And then I think it somehow kind of changes. It becomes more like an entertainment city, but it always had like this dirtiness, like the stuff where like secret things went on. Um, I want to talk about the year Fear and Loathing came out, just to give us a little context and we can start talking more about the movie specifically. So the year was 1998, and I looked this up, and the week Fear and Loathing came out, Godzilla and Deep Impact were both number one and two in the box office, respectively. Uh, Blockbusters. Yeah, this is the year that smoking is banned in all California bars and restaurants. And and in the spirit of bummer vibes, this is also the year that Phil Hartman was killed by his wife. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, it happened the same month that this movie came out. And, you know, just to give you, like, context of this, because I think a lot of people remember that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, I definitely do. That was was a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. like you said before, the movie opened to like lukewarm reviews. People weren't really into this concept, and I think a lot of it is the off-putting style, but maybe the content, the plot gets lost a little. We'll talk about that a little later, but um, I want to talk about the novel and not how that came to be, like the kind of events that that is based on, um, because the movie's based on the novel, as everyone probably already knows. But the movie's based on a trip that Hunter S. Thompson took with Oscar Zeta Acosta, who's Dr. Gonzo. He's a lawyer, and he was a prominent activist in the Chicano movement. Um, this is a history that I learned in a Chicano class, and I think they mentioned it even before what I knew the, what the movie was. So I kind of put these things together as I was watching it. Uh, the two were working on an expose regarding Ruben Salazar, who was a Mexican-American TV journalist, and he was murdered by the LAPD um, at a Mexican at a Chicano moratorium march against the Vietnam War. So that's kind of how these two guys linked up, and it's surrounding the Vietnam War. So. It's like not unimportant to the details that are like happening in Fear and Loathing, even though they, they don't mention the story specifically. Um, yeah, the, in Fear and Loathing, they only establish that this guy is Hunter S. Thompson's lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. the only. Yeah. So what was they yeah. were there because they were writing this expose about this man who was killed by the LAPD, this Mexican American journalist, um, and they they thought it was too tense to talk about. Like they just couldn't talk about it in any place. So they decided to take a, a Sports Illustrated on this offer to go cover the Mint Four Hundred. And oh. like, yeah, uh, Thompson got that offer, and they're like, "Let's yeah. do that, and then we can go talk there." Like, that's like better vibes. Like, we'll go have this conversation over there, and that's <laughs> where this book comes from. <laughs> oh wow, interesting. Yeah, I never read the novel. I picked it up the other day, uh, thinking that I would have time to read it before this podcast, but definitely didn't. Yeah, um, I reread Hell's Angels uh, instead, but um, 
I didn't know that. Yeah, that uh, that uh, kind of fits with the opening of the movie because they seem very secretive when they're at the restaurant and the waiter brings the phone. Yeah, they're yeah. like keeping their voices low. It's like it's almost talking at like a secret operation. And I just thought like that was just paranoid drug act, like acting. Yeah, but yeah. that kind of makes sense maybe they were trying to pull that from the novel a little bit for yeah. some inspiration right. or something right. yeah that's yeah no really i think cool. it also makes sense that they barely covered the mint 400 mm-hmm. you know they're, they're there you know i love the line that um like johnny depp's line where he's like the race started i'm sure of that much but <laughs> i don't know what, <laughs> what that's know it what <laughs> um I, I had I, w- I read like most of the novel i read like 100 pages i read them all like last night it's like a really readable book which is kind of astounding there are a few things that are different like in the Mint 400, he also doesn't cover it in the book, but it's because he can't see anything. And like this is a bit dis- discussion because they throw up all this dust when the bikes take off, and yeah. he can't see any of the race, and he gets impatient. And he just leaves. He's like, "Fuck that! I'm not covering this." <laughs> in the movie, it's kind of similar, but I think he's in a war in the movie. Like he thinks he's like on a battlefield or something. And he yeah, he's like a little flashback yeah. kind of hallucination. Yeah, it's so funny because the way that you guys are talking about it it's like oh yeah that does make sense but when i watch the movie like i kind of build my own little backstory yeah and what that kind of seemed to me like when all the reporters were drinking at the race and they say race is starting and they all get up and a lot of guys just groan like oh gotta go do this bs <laughs> yeah they gotta go punch the clock it seemed like a commentary on reporting mm-hmm. and how much of a sham it really is and kind of prostrating Hunter S. Thompson is like he's really doing it. Like mm. if you want to know what's really going on, read people like this, not those schlubs back there that groaned have to get up. Right. You want to read the guy that wants to drive into the dirt and find the racers and all of that. But's ready to give up and he like, gives up. He gives up. <laughs> That's the other thing. He's he very fires, unreliable. He fires his photographer for being too square, I think. You know, like cause the photographer like is really gung ho about the job. Yeah. He's like, oh you're fired. Full coverage. You awful full coverage. Jackass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, But no, I think that's why people find Hunter S. Thompson credible is because for the, you know, for the reasons you mentioned, like, um, you know, I think that I remember the, the moment when I was like, oh, wow, this guy, like, this guy is great. Um, It's in Hell's Angels. I want to actually just like he captures the mentality of a motorcycle rider like perfectly, you know, Um, yeah, let me let me read that. Okay, so quote, uh, start quote, for a lot of reasons that are often contradictory, the sight and sound of a man on a motorcycle has an unpleasant effect on the vast majority of Americans who drive cars. At one point in the wake of the Hells Angels uproar, a reporter for the New York Herald Tribune did a long article on the motorcycle scene and decided in a course of his research that, quote, there is something about the sight of a passing motorcyclist that tempts many auto- automobile drivers to commit murder, unquote. <laughs> uh, nearly everyone who has ridden a bike for any length of time will agree. The highways are crowded with people who drive as if their sole purpose in getting behind the wheel is to avenge every wrong ever de- done them by man, beast, or fate. The only thing that keeps them in line is their own fear of death, jail, and lawsuits, which are much less likely if they can find a motorcycle to challenge instead of another 2,000-pound car or a concrete abutment. 
A motorcycle has to drive as if everybody else on the road is out to kill him. A few of them are, and many of those aren't, who aren't are just as dangerous, because the only thing that can alter their careless, ingrained driving habits is a threat of punishment, either legal or physical, and there is nothing about a motorcycle to threaten any man in a car. A bike is totally vulnerable, its only defense is maneuverability, and every accident situation is, a, is potentially fatal, especially on a freeway where there is no room to fail, there is no room to fall without being run over almost instantly. Despite these hazards, California, where freeways are a way of life, is by long odds the nation's biggest motorcycle market. Like, he captures the, like, the sense of defensiveness that motorcyclists feel on the road. Like, mm -hmm. if you've ridden a motorcycle on the road with cars, you you feel that way. Like, you feel that every car that is sentiment. trying to kill you. Yeah, you know, like, it, it, it's, uh, that was, like, the first thing I read from him where I was like, this guy, like, really gets in there and understands, like, the mentality of the subject mm -hmm. he's observing or riding on. Um, and uh, just to go back to your point, Dustin, I think that's why, like, people elevate him you know to to that like status of, of like a credible journalist despite the fact that he's like a freaking drug addled and that'll man. drop his assignment yeah at whatever inconvenience <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i mean but that that becomes a story and it becomes its own style of journalism like gonzo journalism like it doesn't i think the thing about it i was looking it up like it doesn't pretend to be objective and that's like yeah. kind of his style it's like the entertainment of the unreliable narrator like that's like the like the driving force of like what makes these fun or interesting or that's why like people were drawn to his work even though that it felt real and um johnny depp actually has this really cool story about living with him because he lived with hunter thompson he like lived in the basement for, of his aspen apartment for like four months yeah yeah exactly they like, hung out a lot too and switched cars yeah um and he talks about like adopting his style his mannerisms and stuff and like acting like him and like ad adopting his twigs and how his tics and he couldn't shake that like the quote mm. is like this man is a disease and i can't shake it like <laughs> i think that's yeah. how like like it infectious to this man's like personality and way of living was it's like he couldn't help but like take on that sort of like fuck it energy you know <laughs> yeah and like he, he made friends with a lot of actors yeah. um which made your comment dustin interesting that he's like He's like a method actor yeah. journalist. That might be the reason, or the, you know, that might be part of the explanation why, for why like actors find him appealing and he makes friends with them. Because that that documentary I mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, buy a ticket, take the ride. Yeah. Um, like all of these famous actors are talking heads in that documentary. Uh, Johnny Depp and uh, I think Sean Penn is in it, and uh, John Cusack, like Bill Murray, uh -huh. like. He made friends with a lot of actors for for some reason, but um, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, Bill Murray said he went on like a reckless binge with him <laughs> when he was like studying for his part because he played him in Where the Buffalo Room. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen that, but I've seen clips. It looks really funny. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen that, but uh, in my research for this, um, Where the Buffalo Room, that's that's a nod to uh, Oscar Acosta. Yeah. Um, so he, Oscar, Oscar, um, he wrote a couple of books, Autobiography of a Brown Buffalo, 1972, um, The Revolt of the Cockroach People, 1973. Yeah. Um, he, so I don't think, we didn't mention this yet, but he, he disappeared in, um, I think, 74? Yeah. 73? Yeah, around there. Like, 
on a trip to Mexico, he just like disappeared. Nobody yeah. knows what happened to him. Yeah, they think that it, or the story is that he drowned. Quotation yeah. marks yeah. in the air. The last communications he had with anybody was with his son over the phone. He said, "I'm about to board a boat full of white snow." <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> what a character! Yeah, wild. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Hunter S. Thompson wrote an article for the Rolling Stone a few la- uh, a few years later, which is basically his like journalistic investigation of what what happened to his friend. Oh wow! Um, yeah, and that quote. So there's a quote in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, um, in uh, at the end where Dr. Gonzo's boarding the plane uh-huh. and he calls him like the uh, um, the mutant prototype or whatever. Yeah. yeah, too too weird to live and too rare to die. There he goes, one of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live and too rare to die. Um, that's from that article that he wrote oh, about, okay. you know, his friend that disappeared. And, you know, it adds a layer of uh, uh, sadness. I loved that quote so much. Uh, that was definitely a tattoo idea that I had for a long time. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was to get that and the bats all around with the characters. Oh, that would be yeah. pretty cool. That would be cool. Not too, a bad tattoo idea. Too weird to live, too rare to die. Yeah. We, nice. so, yeah, we support that fully. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the plot of this movie is nebulous at best like mm-hmm. i don't know like quite how to place the heart of this movie i had a hard time rewatching it because i'm more familiar with his work now um not that i had a hard not that i didn't enjoy it but it was kind of it was harder for me to understand like what this movie was about because he's so focused in a lot of his other work you know what i mean like, i think yeah. if you read enough of his work a lot of it is like this very gonzo style very like off the cuff like it's more about the experience but um, yeah, a lot of his political work is like super focused. Like, he's not afraid mm-hmm. to make attacks. Um, Dustin, we like to ask people, "What do you think this movie is about?" You can answer that in any way, like, like literal plot. Well, I or- definitely know um, talking about it in like film school and stuff like that. But it's definitely like an ode to the '60s and the counterculture, and kind of saying goodbye to that. Yeah, and almost saluting guys like Hunter S. Thompson that are still living it. Yeah, because even today, there's probably some very very old people that are still living this lifestyle this philosophy this mentality and it's a rare breed and at that time it was kind of everybody kind of admitting like oh this is gonna go away like yeah it isn't gonna keep happening it's gonna change and this is the end of an era truly like yeah like one of the most profound scenes of this movie and you know which is kind of ridiculous to say because how how, how much of a romp it is you know there well, is a it, like, takes scene. a break yeah it it's takes like a the break. movie's like this crazy drug ride and then literally <laughs> the movie sits down in front of a typewriter and yeah. then yeah. they talk to you and tell you yeah what, it's, what it is what the 60s what what was that <laughs> so what was all that about you know? yeah <laughs> which is one of the uh, best quotes in the movie about being on the crest of a high and beautiful wave that's one of my favorite lines in the book but also in the movie it plays really yeah good. about getting up on a hill and looking west and you can see where the wave broke and rolled back. And yeah, you now can, it's over. You can see the high water mark. There was madness in any direction. At any hour, you could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right, that we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle. That sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. 
We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark. That place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. <laughs> yeah. Dustin, what do you think about Johnny Depp? Um, I, he's an interesting guy, big fan of a lot of his movies. Yeah. But watching this again, I was talking to Patrick. Anybody could have done this. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody could have played his role. Anybody could have hung out with Hunter S. Thompson for four months and picked up some stuff and yeah. done a decent, if not just as good, maybe even better job. Yeah. That wasn't my perspective until I talked to you, but you make a good case. I think every I think everybody is capable of a good Hunter S. Thompson impression because uh-huh. he's so he's so distinctive, you know, like I don't know. But a big part you just about- gotta speak in a, a monotone draw a big part about johnny playing the role was getting the approval from hunter like that i think that's really what got him the role is hunter s thompson was like this kid's all right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah no like after that conversation with you dustin like i was like yeah i'm kind of more impressed by benicio del toro's performance (laughs) actually oh he's yeah i see it as his movie in here it's fucking great it's benicio's movie yeah and this is just a few short years after usual suspects and he was doing something super strange in that too I was thinking about yeah. it earlier. He was like on the career path to be like a good character actor. I don't think he's quite a character actor now, but like he was kind of on that path in those days. He is a little bit. He's like he plays Devon and in, mm-hmm. in Guardians and all of that. He's like that pop up actor where you're like, oh, he's here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he always plays something that weird. Guy. Yeah, yeah. I definitely really liked Benicio del Toro for a long time. Like the movies that he was in weren't good, but I liked him in it. Yeah, it was a very interesting. Guy. Guy. And and what do you think of uh, Doctor Gonzo as a as a character? The grossest human alive. <laughs> <laughs> like the first, just him. Fifteen like, minutes in the car, he's got his like white beater like rolled up and his barrels hanging out <laughs> yeah. and just like sweating. So much vomit covered in sweat. And <laughs> so much vomits vomit. multiple times. So that article that Hunter S. Thompson wrote about him in '77, he describes him as <laughs> as constantly projectile vomiting blood because he has these. Ulcers. Like, oh my, God. <laughs> he's my friend, though. Yeah, he's, oh, he's my friend. <laughs> I've been noticing this pattern because I was thinking about Johnny Depp, and I feel like I felt negatively toward him for a really long time, and I wasn't sure why. I wasn't sure how to place it because I just had these feelings. Like I think I feel like I hated Keanu Reeves for like a short time too, but I think it's when like an actor is too good looking. It's like this repulsive thing. Like oh, I fucking hate you for having all these things. Mm. <laughs> like why do you have so much? Like I'm I. Think I think I'm noticing this pattern of myself to like dislike actors that are too good looking. But I was looking back his work and kind of appreciating what he's done because I don't, I feel like he's like a consistent actor, but he hasn't been like particularly like prolific, you know, like he's not like yeah. these guys that are putting like three, four movies a year. He's like very selective with his roles. And I think a lot of his roles are actually like really iconic, which I was like kind of struck by, you know, this is an iconic role. Edward Scissorhands is an iconic role. Um, I mean, Pirates of the Caribbean, he just has like, yeah. yeah, like he just like always manages to be iconic, which I kind of respected about the guy. I really like his performance in this. I mean, I think I want to feel inclined to say that anyone can do this, but I think I just enjoy watching him so much. But it 
I think a lot of it has to do with like the dynamic between him and Benicio because I think they're doing really well together. Like I think one of the most electric things in this movie is like that opening scene when they're in the fucking you know in the convertible. Like that dialogue that happens when Tobey Maguire gets into the car. Yeah. <laughs> like there's so many fucking laughs in that scene. Like he's like, can you hear me? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I, I love that when uh, it, the camera is on Johnny Depp's eyes and he's got the monologue going where he's like suspecting Tobey Maguire. And then it, like his mouth comes into the frame and his mouth is moving Starts along moving with his thoughts. Bit. He's like, oh shoot, <laughs> I'm saying that out loud. <laughs> let's talk about favorite scenes uh dustin did you pick any scenes that like particularly stand out to you or like would really make this movie yeah i i really like the scenes when they're tripping the most um, <laughs> definitely in the beginning when they enter the mints and the acids hitting from the lobby to the bar until they actually get into the room after I think and the the reptile zoo hallucination yeah I <laughs> and somebody's love... fe- feeding alcohol to these things <laughs> yeah I love how they tried to show that drug experience without going over the top or anything yeah. like that I haven't done acid but I have talked to a lot of people who have yeah. and they always say pretty good representation of what mm. happens especially the floor the way they yeah. got that to move everyone points to that and be like that's exactly what it is that's what it does um, but I was showing we were watching together uh, with Patrick and there's a part when they're in the bar and the reptile zoo starts happening and, uh-huh. and all the reptiles are there. And there's a part where he hears Benicio del Toro start mumbling, just going home. <laughs> and then Benicio's face comes into camera and Benicio's mouth is just moving yeah. in this weird way. It's, oh, it made me laugh so much. I've replayed it several times. I didn't even notice. There's so much, there's so much chaos in that scene. Yes. I didn't even notice and it until Dustin pointed it out. And I'm like, wow, that is great. The background's moving the yeah. props and chairs and tables are moving the camera's moving the lights oh, are moving shit. it's i gotta rewatch that i didn't catch on to all that detail it's <laughs> it's the coolest thing I, I love that i think that's what i really like about terry gilliam is he's not afraid to like pull you in as much as he can and try as much as he can to yeah. get you the what he's trying to come across with yeah. yeah i mean and that's what like again like i haven't taken lsd either but um the the experience that i hear is it like blows your mind up and like it's like you're you know if you're normally looking through the world through a keyhole it just like it blows your perception so wide that it's like sensory overload yeah yeah i hear a lot Um, like audio is a different type of hallucination that doesn't get talked about a whole lot with lsd and i feel like this movie messes with the audio so much yeah Yeah. and and i think terry i think terry gilliam is a good director for this kind of like to to portray this kind of experience because he's trying to like overload you with stimulus yeah Yeah. like in the same way yeah Yeah. um totally does it yeah Mm -hmm. he gets discomfort very right he gets that thing about well i did at least in other things but like how like you're not sure when you said something out loud But um, I think on LSD, you, like, lose your ego a lot. And there's, like, he does play with, like, the vulnerability of how, like, Thompson mm-hmm. is feeling. And, you know, he always feels, like, exposed. Just, like, helpless. Yeah, exactly. Like, he can't even talk to the person at the desk. 
the whole thing with their faces like moving all weird like their eyes getting bigger and stuff like that that's like a very true thing yeah it does get that very right i don't think movies are always like the best way to show like people tripping you know what i mean because difficult yeah it's something you can't really nail but yeah i i think i would agree that this is the closest thing especially like the panic they're going through at circus circus with like the rotating bar just the confusion confusion that happens like even though this thing is moving like at a snail's pace like the confusion that's happening in that scene like how how hunter or johnny depp like keeps on losing track of benicio like he's like where did he go like (laughs) (laughs) so you know what i love about that rotating bar i think that's when um i you know i might be wrong actually that might be the stationary bar that they're at but um i think they're on the rotating one Mm -hmm. and Benicio del Toro's like having a really bad trip and he wants to leave. Yeah. He's tri- he wants to leave the country. Are they on the on the Are they on the carousel bar at that time? Yeah, yeah. Um, he said he, okay. gets, he gets the fear. Yeah, no, it works perfectly because uh, Johnny Depp has a line of dialogue. He's like, "We're here chasing the American dream and we're at the vortex." You yeah, know, like, and yeah. the vortex is spinning this around, spinning bar. <laughs> I hate to say this, but this place is getting to me. I think I'm getting the fear. Nonsense. We came here to find the American dream. Now that we're right in the vortex, do you want to quit? You must realize, man, we found the main nerve. That's what gives me the fear. Do you have any ideas about that? I was thinking, like, what he meant when he, he meant American dream. To me, that like, has something to, like, <laughs> has something to do with drugs, obviously. <laughs> like, mm, so about some altered yeah. state, but like, what do you think that, that he means when he says American dream in this movie? Like, do you think it's satirical? Do you think he's like in earnest chasing like this American dream? Um, what do you think's going on with this metaphor of the American dream or this like figure of speech almost? Cause I don't even think it's a metaphor in this or what do you think about that? I like the idea of it being satire actually. Yeah. Just kind of like, Ooh, the American dream. Go mm-hmm. ahead and chase that. Whatever that is. Cause yeah. it is an elusive thing. It's not a solid, clear goal. Yeah. Yeah. But it's something that's said. It's almost like when you tell a kid they can be anything they want. Yeah. Love it. If that was true, beautiful world, if that was true. But in reality, not every kid can be what they want and not every American is going to achieve the dream no matter how hard they chase it they were never going to get there and it's gross when you think about it it's upsetting and I think that's a lot of what Hunter Hunter S. Thompson wanted to show people is like look look what you're chasing it's not real yeah right right yeah no I I I see I I agree with you it's a it's it's a satirical um, expression the Amer- the American dream but you know that that he's saying um, the the consumerism and excessive consumption I, I think is rampant as as symbols for for that in this movie like and just, like a few examples the cars mm-hmm. um, like he rents these really expensive cars uh, and just trashes, trashes them. them you know um, I he mentions how how much that Cadillac convertible is is ten thousand dollars in nineteen seventy one dollars. That's like seventy grand today. Yeah. Like that's, that's like he nice got like the today. most <laughs> like upper end luxury yeah. car he could get and just totally today. trashed it. And you know I I don't know if that is a carelessness or re- I don't know if that carelessness for the value of the car is like a revolt against the consumerism yeah. or if it's a more negative like portrayal of like our tendency to be like a throwaway consumer consumer you know like i'm just gonna take this thing and like use it up and throw it away yeah because it's not mine right yeah because it's not mine and um the other uh uh thing i mentioned consumerism Mm -hmm. um i see 
them running up these um, room service bills. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, he mentions he's got like a couple thousand dollar room service bill at the end of his first day or whatever. It, it's just, it's it's a mindless excessive consumption yeah yeah yeah. um and the and the the drug binging too you know it's it's like another it's the same excessive consumption like i think that's all the stuff he means by american dream yeah but i feel like in the way that he lived his life like consumption was like a positive in his his life like i feel like he he valued that in his life yeah so so caesar we we were on a road trip recently yeah and hunter s thompson came up in conversation and you pulled up something that he wrote about his uh uh his uh drug regimen for writing right (laughs) like you got you got to pull that up and read it it's it's insane (laughs) like how to get into the mindset to start writing well yeah he just like listed everything that he would take on a typical day before he would get ready for before he would write you know, and he would write through the night. You know, yeah. Because, like, his life was so, like, chaotic with people, like, coming through and stuff like oh, that. Oh, it was that. Gabe who pulled us up, but, uh, yeah. Oh, Gabe pulled it yeah. up. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought that was you. No, um, it's okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, this is pretty good. Yeah. It's kind of long. Okay, go for it. Three p- no, it's worth it. Okay, 3 p.m. rise, 3.05, Chivas Regal with the morning papers, Dunhills. 3.45, cocaine, 3.50, another glass of Chivas, Dunhill. 4.05, first cup of coffee, Dunhill. 4.15, cocaine. 4.16, orange juice, Dunhill. 4.30, cocaine. 4.54, cocaine. 5.05, cocaine. 5.11, cocaine, Dunhills. 5.30, more ice in the Chivas. 5.45, cocaine, etc., etc. 6 o'clock, grass to take the edge off the day. 7.05, Woody Creek Tavern. Been up for three hours at the point. <laughs> yeah. Woody Creek Tavern for Lit Chinican, two margaritas, coleslaw, a taco salad, a double order of fried onion rings, carrot cake, ice cream, a bean fritter, Dunhills, another Heineken, cocaine, and for the ride home, a snow cone, a glass of shredded ice over which is poured three or four jiggers of Chivas. Nine o'clock, start snorting cocaine seriously. Ten o'clock, drops seriously. seriously. <laughs> Ten o'clock, drops acid. Eleven o'clock, chartreuse, cocaine, grass. Eleven thirty, cocaine, etc., etc. Midnight. Hunter S. Thompson is ready to write. <laughs> Twelve o five to six a.m. Chartreuse, cocaine, grass, chivas, coffee, Heineken, clove cigarettes, grapefruit, Dunhills, orange juice, gin. Continuous pornographic movie. Six p- six o'clock. The hot tub, champagne, Dove bars, fettuccine Alfredo. Eight o'clock, Halcyon. Eight twenty, sleep. <laughs> That's his daily schedule. <laughs> Jeez. Like it's uh, it's strange to say but like i kind of like admire like how he's able to do all of that and still write coherently Mm -hmm. or just live in general he's he's a brilliant yeah or live in general like (laughs) there's no way i could even like function cognitively you know like yeah it gives me it gives me a little bit of anxiety just reading that it's like how terrible that must feel (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) it's very you wonder because of all his writing you know he uses imagination a lot or expands on the truth a bit like Mm -hmm. that could be a bit of satire but like probably pretty close yeah um man that's so much that's i've I've wondered (laughs) i've wondered like how close raul duke is to hunter s thompson it seems Um, like it's pretty pretty close i mean like just just in my imagination of what i've read from him the way he acted like the way he was in public it, it feels like it's pretty close in this movie just based on like all the reading that I've done because I've read a, like a good portion of his book. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, like he's mentioned in later interviews the problem with like creating this character that is so popular 
is everywhere he goes like he's the he becomes the story uh-huh. um more than mm. you know like he can't do the thing that yeah. he likes to do right yeah because he's bigger than any story like he goes to yeah um i think i've taken that form as far as i can take it i i found that I re- i'm starting to repeat myself anyway and it's not, not as much fun anymore it's hard for me to work on a story now i go to that i become part of the story first time i went to a press conference with Jimmy Carter, I had to sign more autographs than Carter signed. And the Secret Service had no idea who I was. They thought I was an astronaut. Uh, I used to be able to stand in the back, you know, and observe stories and absorb them. I can't do that. Now, the minute I, I appear at a story, then I become part of it. I, I, I haven't... Have you read Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail? I really want to read that. I Mm-mm. Like, mm-hmm. some people's... You know, a lot of journalists grew up on that mm-hmm. in particular, and... Uh, it's, uh, I think it's the McGovern and Nixon campaign, and he's like following around the McGovern uh, campaign, and and the story is that um, I think it's McGovern. I, I hope I'm don't have that wrong, but um, he's like the more hopeful progressive candidate, and Nixon is more like establishment right wing re- Republican, uh-huh. and and he hates Nixon. Like it's it's clear like how much. Uh, he just detests Nixon. <laughs> yeah, you know, Caesar. I think I borrowed that book, Proud Highway. You mentioned uh, that book of his letter. Okay. I think I borrowed that from you. Okay, because it's yeah, I don't have it here. Do you still have it? <laughs> no, I was looking for it on my <laughs> shelf, and I can't find it. I think maybe I gave it away to somebody else. Oh, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> the scene that stuck out to me the most this time around, and I think it's kind of an odd scene. It's like the odd scene now is in the diner with the meringue pie with. The waitress. Yeah, I wanted to mention that one too. He's so yeah. uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the yeah, it's one of the most uncomfortable scenes in the movie. Despite like these drug trips and something, because uh, it's so threatening. I think Benicio manages to, to be like the threatening presence in this movie, even though like Thompson is so out of fucking control. Um, like, imagine how much bigger you have to be as an actor <laughs> to kind of like take over a scene, and he is threatening with the, with a knife yeah. when he's holding the knife, and he like. <laughs> He's like he's just like the menace in the room. Like you understand like the tension when he like when he does it refuses to kill him in the bathtub and he like jams the door yeah. with that chair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We bust through the door and the the strobe lights are going off and he's very bestial. Mm-hmm. Like, it's definitely a Hunter S. Thompson word too, labeling things as a beast. But yeah, definitely in this movie, yeah, he's yeah. What's what's an the intimidating uh, character? What's the opening quote? Um, like a man's willingness to become a beast is what prevents him from like from feeling the pain of being a human being. Yeah, mm-hmm. like that's another a huge element of this is like they. The movie opens just, with that quote, right? That's at the beginning. Yeah, of this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. Yeah. Um, so these guys are just going like they're just going out of their minds to numb the pain of being humans. Yeah. About about the um, about that diner scene, I wanted to ask you guys a question. I don't know if you noticed this, but. There, I mean, just the timing in that scene is really weird. There's a really like, there's not a lot of dialogue in it. But at the end, when Benicio yeah. walks out after he's done what he's done, he's, he buys the pie. He walks out. Um, there's like this whole moment where Depp is like quiet. He's silent and he like picks up everything and he picks up the plate of food. But then he comes back and puts it back down. Did you, yeah. Like, what is what's going on in that moment? I was I was curious. I see it as like the human moment. It's yeah. like showing like, yeah, this guy is this crazy drug dude and he has weird friends and he does yeah. this crazy lifestyle, but he does have a human side. He knows when something wrong is happening. He can have compassion when he sees someone mm. in a position yeah. where they're weak and yeah. he can understand. He's coherent and clear. Yeah. 
uh, and can connect as a human, it's possible. I think that's what that scene is for. It's just showing this is possible, mm. not happening all the time. But yeah, yeah, I see. Like he's morally disturbed at that point. Like that that should not have happened, and he he's like he's remorseful on behalf of Benicio del Toro. You know, and yeah. Um, he that, found the line there. Yeah. He found yeah. his line. He's like, yeah. all right, that's beyond what I'm cool with. Right. Um, yeah. I wanted to mention that scene, uh, because it's, it's the third in, uh, 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 three iterations of Benicio del Toro's character having problems with women. Yeah. Like first with Cameron, mm. Cameron Diaz in the, in the elevator. Yeah. And then, uh, Christina Ricci and then this waitress in, um, the diner, uh, like this toxic aggression, is an undercurrent throughout weirdly it's not there with christina ricci but there's something weird it's like possessiveness yeah because he did that with cameron diaz he's like my baby right she took my baby yeah yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) same thing with christina ricci like he's treated her like a baby like his child yeah yeah and i think in every instance um dr gonzo has like crosses a line Mm -hmm. that uh, Hunter S. Thompson tries to bring him back. You're he's, right. Yeah, because like with uh, Christina Ricci, he's he gets uh, he's like, oh yeah, we should just like sell her to all these main cops, you yeah. know, and like we could probably make two thousand bucks a day. <laughs> like he's just like trying to like push him to see like why like this is so wrong. Like she's a freaking child. Like what are you doing with this girl? Yeah. We can set her up in one of these backstreet motels, hang pictures of Jesus all over the room, and then turn these fucking pigs loose on her. Well, she's strong, man. She'll hold her own. Jesus Christ, I knew you were sick, but I never expected to hear you actually say that kind of stuff. You filthy bastard. Straight economics, man. This girl's a godsend. Shut She can make us a grand a day. That's ugly, man. Stop talking like that. I figure she can do about four at a time. What right, if you keep her full of acid? That's more like two grand a day. And... In particular, like that's where you find Hunter S. Thompson's like moral line. Yeah, you know? and same thing with Cameron Diaz when he's like talking about my baby. Uh, yeah, like Hunter S. Thompson's like, I'm gonna go, I'm right? Getting out of here, right? Yeah, and he's like, tr- like he he tries to talk doc- Dr. Gonzo off of like going up and castrating the photographer for stealing his baby. He's mm-hmm. like, yeah. no, just leave that weird fucker alone. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I ate um, baby. <laughs> and then so like the the uh, Christina Ricci. Uh, thing doesn't fit the pattern to me a little bit, you know, like I guess it does in a way, but Dr. Uh, yeah. Gonzo like th- sees her as like, like his relationship with her is this like pure thing. Yeah. Like I love how his, he gets like his sensibilities get offended when um, Hunter S. Thompson like talks about her. So like selling her to like the cops, mm-hmm. yeah. um, like he, I love his reactions. Like, Oh, that's gross. Oh, I knew I knew you were crazy, but I never thought you would say anything like that to me. <laughs> but I think it's because it feels like he's a parent by then. Well, because she is really a child, but it is so like mm-hmm. it feels kind of sexual. It's like it's it's very possessive. Yeah, it's yeah. like he owns women, and women should do as he bids. Yeah, kind of thing. In and all if they don't, that's when the toxic aggression comes out and he starts waving the knife around mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's uh that's an intense moment in the diner like he just she she's standing up for herself like yeah. why the hell would you pass me this this is this is gross and then he 
pops the knife out and then it just like totally changes the it was just the name of yeah. his horse right <laughs> you so know? Such, a, such a bad excuse to be a dirt right. bag no i like uh, Hunter S. Thompson looks at the napkin. He's like, the question mark is emphasized. <laughs> <laughs> but I really like the narration that uh, Johnny Depp has in that when he's talking about how he sees that woman of mm, like, yeah. she's seen a blade before. She's oh, felt yeah. the cut on her throat before. Like, Her eyes were turgid with, with fear. Her eyes were turgid with fear. But her brain was functioning on some basic motor survival level. 35 cents. How much is that lemon meringue pie? 35 cents. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed that Johnny Depp has just, like, taken this voice now? Like, this is just, like, what he sounds like now? Yeah. Yeah, there's, like, an impermanent imprint of Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, which is mm-hmm. on him. I was thinking about, like, how the movie's kind of using Las Vegas as, like, this microcosm of the U.S. in general, as far as, like, consumerism and hypocrisy. All these rules. Like, yeah. that, that highlighted sign about how marijuana, like... If you're using marijuana, you can go away for jail. Like the hypocrisy, like around that image being Las Vegas, this place of like absolute indulgence and debauchery. Yeah, which is something they mentioned in the book. They mentioned that specific sign in the book, but it's not standing there. They talk about how it was in Vegas years ago. Vegas is a weird place. Yeah. It's in the whole setup of what Vegas is is very strange. It's like, hey, bring your money here. Uh-huh. You can probably win a lot more, mm-hmm. but. Everybody knows that the house has the odds. Yeah. So it's like this lie that yeah. everyone tells themselves yeah. to go have this debaucherous time yeah. and just throw money at the hopes of winning big, but also being willing to lose it all. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I kind of see it as like, it's, it's filling a niche in like this, like, it's like a scream release yeah. of tension. Yeah. It's it's uh it's filling like an economic niche for like this people like like it's scratching an itch. When but, money doesn't you know, scare you anymore, go do something scary with yeah, money kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. But it allows yeah. you to indulge completely in like superficiality. It's like Yeah. Yeah. It's like diving headfirst into like emptiness in a sense. I mean, I think that's what it's standing in here for, like this great emptiness. I don't think he felt like he was chasing anything, but I think there's like this libertarian bone in him where he's like, I should be free to do nothing or like waste my life or go to like the very boundaries of my psyche. Like he, he mm-hmm. just, like, like I feel like Hunter S. Thompson in a way believes in America. That's why he spends so much time talking about it and like criticizing it and exploring or just exploring like the American dream, the American mechanisms, government. I mean, I don't think you talk about those things as much as he did without having an admiration for him, for, for them, for, for, you know, his country. I feel like he did love America. I feel that in his work, which is a strange yeah. thing. I think he wanted way more out of it. And I, you could see agree, the potential. Yeah. It's almost like a father being upset with with yeah. y- your son or your daughter that's not achieving what you know they could. Yeah, he had like he had an ideal for where the American experiment should go. You yeah. know, like I think he ran for governor of Colorado yes, or something. Yeah, on like the that. freak yeah. power battle. Yeah, freak like power. Yeah. 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 I think I think it's things like that that made me feel like in a way, he was an optimist. Like, he didn't feel like America was a lost cause or a failed experiment. I think he very much felt like you can get what you want as long as you live like you want to. You know? Yeah. Like, it felt, as long as you feel like you're free enough. And I think he did in a way where he felt like he was free enough to do whatever he wanted. I think he saw the the the, the possibility of that for everyone. Like, if anyone hmm. just, like, let go of, like, um, your ego or, like, you know, like... It's like self-consciousness I think that what happens a lot in drugs you, you're able to like shed your ego and self-conscious like self-consciousness you don't feel self-conscious anymore in a way 
Um, in, in some ways, I mean, like it, it does get very like paranoid and fearful, but in some ways, like you don't feel self-conscious. You're just like thinking more, you know? I feel like he saw the possibility of America to be that place where if you were willing to be a certain type of person, that you can find absolute like happiness and freedom. Yeah, I get the sense that like authenticity was really important to him. Yeah. And uh, like he was like, um, like fearlessly authentic. Yeah. Like yeah, he, being genuine. Yeah. 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 I admire that a lot. I definitely yeah. do a lot of that myself of being authentic and genuine. And if something doesn't excite me, I'm going to be honest with how something is yeah. feeling to me. Yeah. And it's like, sometimes you got to pay the price for that. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. know, like sometimes people don't like it mm -hmm. if you're authentic. Absolutely. Um, especially like if you're running against, against the grain of a, a social norm or um, an institutional norm or something like that. Yeah. Like, They'll, if you do it hard enough, they'll throw you in jail, you know, or mm -hmm. kill you, you know, like, uh, but if you're like fearlessly authentic, um, you'll pay the price, you know, like to be, to be yourself. Yeah. And I feel like that, like Hunter S. Thompson exudes that. Yeah. And he had an appreciation for people, people who are doing like, I guess, important work in government like that. Like he, he has mm -hmm. figures that he admired, you know, he was really... I think he was really looking for goodness in people like overall like as bizarre that may seem as like as like dangerous and reckless as he might have seemed I, I think I mean there was a heart to him but like, I think mm -hmm. there's like something in his work that's like also just just recklessly racist <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> I think that yeah. needs to be mentioned probably <laughs> no yeah like and I think the reckless part of that is uh should be emphasized yeah he's like uh, it, it, like there's a lot of racist jokes in this, especially in like the first part. Where yeah, he's talking about Doctor Gonzo. Yeah, um, having a, a racial handicap. Yeah, like yeah. despite his racial handicap, he still understands that blah blah blah. You know, mm -hmm. like, yeah, and he calls um, him a Samoan, which, and he's like not a Samoan. I don't know if I like the sake of the book, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which like it's tongue in cheek, but yeah, you know, for sure, it's, it's pretty pretty bad. I mean, yeah, and <laughs> reading his personal correspondence, he's still like pretty much that problematic when it comes to like issues of race, like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but he's. He, I mean, I'm not going to make excuses for him. He says it in an offhanded way, but still, you know, he says a lot of racist shit. Um, or Seth, because Seth, you know, killed himself 2005, Int which is interesting than I thought. In or way more yeah. Like I didn't. I didn't realize he had been alive for that long. I like. I thought he had died like some point in the 80s or something, but he killed himself in 2005. And it is. Yeah. I, I wonder like what was, like what led him there. I think well, we were talking ready. about this last night, right? Yeah. That like he said something about. He uh, was like, ready. Yeah, you, you like tell fifteen it. years or something before he died, he he was interviewed and he said, um, "I've lived all the life that there is to live. Like I've lived more life than anyone half my age at this yeah. point, yeah, uh, or or double my age or something like that. You have essentially like he's experienced all that life has to offer. He's touched everything. He's he's seen everything. He's heard everything. He's ready to go. Yeah, and he, he was kind of just sticking around for his kids a little bit more." Yeah. And his death note kind of said that as well of just like, you're just keeping me here for your greed. Like, I don't want to be here. Yeah. I've done it wow. all. And really, I'm only here for you. And you only want me to be here for you. You don't want me to be here for me. Yeah. Because if you knew what I wanted, I have it all. Damn. That's, yeah. that's, I mean, his, that's intense. I want, I kind of want to do that. I want to read that as we close this out. 
his suicide note because he can find it. And cool. It's like, yeah, it's sad. And I, I think if memory serves me correctly, I think his family was like in the next room when he shot himself. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, just Which a, crazy. a thought on that. That's it. It's interesting to think about that. That's is that a possibility that like a human a human person can only experience so much before they're just like i'm done i mean you know, like yeah. i've seen it all like or and he's also the kind of person that you would expect to die young yeah and he yes. lived to be an old man i mean he kind of defeated the odds yeah i feel like it makes sense when you think of your your body in terms of like being a vehicle or a mechanism like you run out of gas mm-hmm. and when you live as fast like when you put as many miles on as he did like the way he was living was not sustainable but i don't think you can live any other way and that's kind of what he says in the note yeah. Yeah, and like your experiences, your memories, all of that can fill up. It can reach capacity essentially, I think is what he did and Yeah. Yeah, his body can keep going and his mind could keep going but not at the capacity that he thought life should be lived at. Yeah, right. definitely, especially at his age. Um well, let me read it. We'll close out with that. No more games, no more bombs, no more walking, no more fun, no more swimming. 67. That is 17 years past 50. 17 more than I needed or wanted. Boring. I'm always bitchy. No fun for anybody. 67. You're getting greedy. Act your old age. Relax. This won't hurt. Wow. <laughs> Act your age. This won't hurt. <laughs> uh, Dustin, thanks for doing this. Uh, sorry I was, like, so nervous, but this new, te- this new <laughs> no, technology... No, this is great. Thanks for having me, guys. new technology freaks me out. If, and for everybody listening, we're trying something new. Lot we learned a lot in the session alone. I hope it works out. I hope this sounds great. We tried really hard. Dustin, um, where can we find you? Um, I do improv in Orange County. I don't do a whole lot of social media presence or anything like that, but I do perform at the Improv Collective at Costa Mesa. They have a website, improvcollective.fun. And uh, if you go to those shows, you'll see me hanging out or performing on stage. Hell yeah. Yeah, check him out. He does a improv competitive improv league ifl he's the uh three-time reigning champion uh manager yeah (laughs) so good at it he's too good you gotta (laughs) those shows are great by the way anyone listening anyone listening go to costa mesa and do the uh see the improv yeah i'm definitely gonna check that out that sounds like a lot of fun all right guys thanks for talking i'll see you soon see you man Bye. bye Thanks for listening. That was our talk about fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Don't know if you could tell, but I was extremely nervous for that one. We learned new technology. We were recording from two different places today. We got a whole new sound setup. I had to learn a couple new skills to edit, but we got it done. Good job, us. Go us. Thanks for listening, you guys. Great conversation. Thanks, Dustin, from Beyond. Thanks, Patrick, for helping us out. Thank you, Curtis, for the technology information. That went really well. You can follow us on Instagram at Film Slobbery. That's F-I-L-M-S-L-O-B-B-E-R-Y. Talk to us. Leave some comments. Let us know what we should do. We don't really have a set schedule right now. We're open to suggestions. Leave us reviews. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts. You can find all our episodes there. The next two weeks, we want to talk about a few things. Some friends want to come on. We want to talk about Almost Famous. We want to talk about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Maybe even my big fat Greek wedding before I get married in two weeks. How's that sound? We want to have Roxy on. The off-reference fiancé. That'd be great. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. I'm excited. We'll see you next time. 